Blog Talk Radio. Today's program, 
the first would like to bring in Brother Haki and welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, it's a, it's a glorious day. I got to tell you, Brother Africa, one of, one of the real problems that we're confronted with is trying to understand the nature of the oppression that we're confronted with. There's certain, certainly a lot of conf- confusion in the African community with respect in terms of the methodology of the uh, people in power employ to keep us confused. There are multiple institutions that are actually uh, responsible for the kind of confusion that exists in the African community as well as the community, uh, the community at large. But I think but one of the institutions that's, that's the primary driver in terms of this, 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 this lack of information pertains to the church. I think one of the things that we, we don't talk about a lot is that when we when we talk about the power of the church, often we, 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 we because it's, it's a, it has a spiritual nature, there's propensity or the tendency to uh, even to downplay it. But nonetheless, the interpretation of those, those, those Christian scriptures determines to a large extent how people think, uh, people's willingness to stand up, or even people's willingness to support their own oppression. So clearly this issue in terms of uh, the uh, church's culpability in terms of the oppression waged against the African people is something that's worth, worth talking about. But in any event, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out, okay? Now, the methods employed by capitalists in the U.S. <clears throat> to maintain oppression of African people is both intricate and covert. Unlike the proverbial insults meted out to African people, the most effective means of maintaining oppression of African people is the innovation of institutions which not only justify the oppression of African people, but more covertly conditions the African people to internalize self-loathing. This process of internalization is vastly more destructive to Africans' psyche because it programs us to see ourselves as less capable. Consequently, viewing oneself as inferior means not only the validation of oppressive systems, but a misguided belief that the oppression of African people is a function of our inadequacies. Such views, although existing on an unconscious level, serves to validate oppression, oppressive institutions, giving, giving them more credibility. Credibility of such systems enjoy a high degree of legitimacy, but in extending legitimacy to these oppressive systems by our very actions, we delegitimize our right to self-determination as a people and an explicit right to be the best people or best human beings we can be. The one institution that has inflicted considerable psychological harm to African people is the Christian church. The roots of the black Christian church goes back to the late 18th century. However, the historical roots goes back to Abyssinia and Ethiopia, and interpretations of the richest text uh, between East and West differ considerably. Originally intended as a spiritual document, the Roman leaders understood the power and influence of this document and sought to usurp the Christian doctrine by politicizing Christianity. Downplaying the spiritual aspect of Christianity, Christianity would be interpreted as a political document espousing the necessity of subservience to power and the acceptance of injustice as a Christian responsibility. Arian, the African religious scholar, opposed the apostates or the deceivers. In other words, he opposes the notion in terms of using the scripture for the sole purpose of deceiving people to accept their oppression. But he was unable to end a practice that was endorsed both by the church and powerful political leaders in Rome at the time. I should also add at this point, Brother Africa, when we talk about Arian, one of the things that's very, very interesting is that historically you have these white, white racists who consider themselves Aryan Brotherhood. Uh, they stopped using that term since the 90s, and the reason being, once they found that Aryan was an African, they could no longer use the term Aryan. So it's very interesting in terms of, you know, the necessity in terms of understanding history. Now, the process of giving the Bible a political context did not end with the Romans. 
revision of the Bible were first enacted by the Bishop's Bible in early 16th century England, culminating in the King James Version in the early 17th century. Defined as an authorized version, in other words, um, after they looked through the 48 different uh, religious texts, they decided that they would they would set on a particular version of the Bible. Both the political texts were manipulated to separate people from their gods and replace the gods with worship of powerful people. Unfortunately, the political context of the Bible persists today. This point could best be illustrated by tracing the origin of the black church. The black church originated in the early 19th century under the tutelage of Andrew Bryan of the first African Methodist Gospel Church, in which he established. Bryan had originally started out as a father preacher on a plantation advocating recognition of the enslaved humanity and their relationship to the creator. Such teachings did not set well with the wealthy plantation owners, and as a consequence, Bryan was imprisoned on numerous occasions. Eventually, Bryan got the message and abandoned progressive sermons. Instead, sermons now would focus on hard work and respect for the nation. Punishment inflicted on Bryan was harsh. Wealthy plantation owners were aware such scriptures advocating a relationship with the creator would put the African lives on par with that of wealthy white people. More importantly, Africans would not view enslavement favorably, nor the rules that subjugated Africans. Discouraging unfavorable scripture interpretation by African preachers, the wealthy plantation owners would pay African preachers on Sundays, provided they omit scripture that empowers or reinforces a sense of self-determination. This strategy, for the most part, was pretty effective. Philanthropists started funding the, the right kind of black church or the right kind of black preachers back in 1929. By 1929, during the Great Depression, Philanthropists set up regions throughout the U.S. where Pacific black churches, Pacific black churches, could be identified and financed. Despite the economic ills sweeping the nations at that time, the wealthy long-term strategy of maintaining African oppression hinged upon churches conveying a message of subservience, a message of greed, and a message of individualism. In setting up these regions, the southern region received $14,642 in the west-south region, which consists of Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma and Texas received $6,406,379. The East-West region, which consisted of Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, received $8,176,640. Pacific region or the West Coast received $529,720. Interestingly enough, the region with the most African population received the most funding. Regions with smaller African populations received less funding. Coincidence? Probably not. My intent here is not to portray all Christians as dupes of a system that undermines their existence. That would be extremely disingenuous. The reality is there were Africans who understood the attempt by the wealthy to facilitate values that were destructive to the African spirit and emotional health. In understanding this implicit harm to African well-being, these Africans did not partake in Sunday sermons on the plantation, but opted to sneak away and perform church services conducive to the upliftment and the role of African liberation theology. These secret meetings called brush harbors were conducted in secret so as to avoid detection from the plantation owners. Also, I should point out that these there have been incidents where the black church has been led or supported movements throughout the, throughout the US, United States. Contributions of uh, influence, influential church people like C.T. Vivian, Fred Shuttleworth, Y.T. Walker, Vernon Johns, Martin Luther King, Calvin Butts, Dr. James Cone, Sojourner Truth, Florence Randolph, Dr. Joseph Laurie are only a few examples of clergy that elevated humanity over the pursuit of dollars. However, in the age of prosperity, preachers and evangelicals 
Can someone explain to me in the community why emulating your enemy's value system is good for humanity or the life or their own lives in the long run? So my question to the African community is very, very simple. How does a million-dollar personal airplane justify – how does $1 million personal airplane for pastors or justifying property propagate the best in Christianity? Why does pimp, pimping the gospel exist at all? So at some point, we've got to begin to ask ourselves and question the, the kind of message that's so um, detrimental to the aspirations of African people that, that exist in the churches. Now, this, the implications of this, Brother Africa, so when we talk about in terms of the role of the church in terms of imparting certain kind of negative uh, messages in terms of to the minds of the, the congregates, one thing you've got to understand that this is not just a phenomenon, I, even though I talked about the United States, it's a world phenomenon. So wherever you find Christianity in the world, interpretation of Christianity has pretty much a Western connotation in terms of how Christianity is interpreted. So the kind of individualism, kind of greed and selfishness, which which is pretty much um, uh, inculcated uh, by the teachings of Western Christianity, is also being disseminated throughout the world. And so it does have implications in terms of in terms of governments around the world, particularly when you try to bring about a different paradigm. Unfortunately, if you internalize those kind of values, then any attempt in terms of doing something that is different, something that speaks ill of greed, uh, avarice, um, uh, selfishness. Anything that speaks against that tends to rub those people who internalize those values the wrong way. As a consequence, those Christians will fight against any values which doesn't incorporate those same negative values. So clearly this is a problem that is worldwide and some of the certain is a problem we have to look at. And one of the things that is very interesting is that recently I was reading some articles in terms of what's happening in terms of um, in the, the central, in central Africa, the central region of Africa, the sub-Saharan region of Africa, and which, uh, for some reason, these, these very groups are targeting the Christian Christian churches, and it got me to thinking in terms of what is propensity in terms of these Christian churches to uplift values which are destructive to the overall uh, uh, masses of the people who reside in those particular countries. So it's very very interesting. This is not to say that you know all. This, again, I have to reiterate. This is not to say that all Christians are duped, you know, by the system, but nonetheless. It, but it does underscore the fact that there's certainly this, this perception that exists in you know, in, the, in the world that do, when Christians Christian, when Christianity is uh, internalized as Western Christianity, uh, that certainly they tend to do things which are which are geared toward the oppression of, of themselves and their people at the expense of liberation and freedom. So clearly, this is a problem in which I think that you know what is one of the things that we, we grapple with in terms of trying to bring about change in the society because one of the things you know in, in the context of America. When we try to bring about this change, there's a lot of resistance. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the resistance comes from the Christian church. And so we've got to get to ask ourselves, why this resistance in the Christian church? And it goes back to the origin of the Christian church in America itself. So clearly, you know, we, we have some questions to ask ourselves. And so, you know, uh, and it's not to blame all Christians, because there are some Christian, some Christian uh, leaders, uh, uh, pastors, who are out here doing good work. Uh, Brother Bob out in North Carolina is doing very good work in terms of the Poor People Campaign in terms of trying to bring some redress in terms of the systematic uh, oppression, systematic injustice and suffering inflicted upon, you know, uh, people, you know, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the nation. So clearly there are people who are actually doing the work on the Christian church, but unfortunately uh, these people seem to be uh, few and far between. And unfortunately, you know, we, I think it's something that on some level I think we have to begin to address in terms of having some kind of discourse with preachers in terms of the message that they give to these, to the congregants, because if they keep internalizing the messages which are antithetical to their own liberation, then it's serve nobody's interest but the powerful. And this would be unfortunate. And I close with that, Brother Africa. 
Thank you, Brother Aki. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Do we have a Brother Moses? Are you still with us, Brother Moses? Yes, I was on mute. I'm sorry. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school year, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. We always, it's always an honor, Brother Moses, to have you. What we're going to do right now, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we're going to bring in our special guest for the first half first half part of this program, Brother Bamboshi Shungo. He's a experienced political organizer, a Pan-Africanist, and we're going to try to get some of that um, knowledge that he has storage um, in him based upon his experiences of working and traveling among our people on a global basis. So when we come back, we will bring in our special guest for the first half, half part of this program, and we want you to also join us. So at this point in time, let's go to our revolutionary culture break, and we'll be right back with our guest for the first half part of this program. You're listening to Africa is on the move. So vast, so great, these African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Sick of 
it's a good original one. It's from the town, it's the hip hop town, but we give this town. Take us a cake, take us a good original one. Got your Wall Street brother, you 
call my brother You're down for whatever, chillin' on the corner, brother Talented brother And for every one of y'all behind bars You know that Angel loves ya My, 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 brother that you're getting on Africa on the Move is information that unless you have one of those uh, sticky paper mentality in mind, you may not remember. So it behooves us to look at this program and the information that it gives as kind of a classroom, kind of a program that you listen to with a pen and paper in your hand. So you can take information from this program for your use. 
You can take information from this program to check it out to make sure it is correct. For example, I think Brother Haki just gave you a whole litany of information on the black church. And many folks may have rejected automatically because they're from the black church and they love the black church and they're sometimes blinded by the black preacher. But you need to check it out. You need to see if what he just said is true. You need to go back and say, he said this, but I don't think it's true. Let me see for myself. Check it out. And to do that, some of us, like me, need a pen and paper in my hand so that I can say, this is the information that I'm going to look up. This is the information that I'm going to verify. I just wanted to say that in the opening, Brother Africa, because your program gives more information to our community that we can use to understand the necessity for revolutionary change and most other so-called radio programs on the Internet. I thank you again for this opportunity. I don't exactly have a written script to follow today. So you will have to bear with me. I would like to divert... Go ahead, finish your thought. I'm sorry, go ahead, brother. No, we just like to thank you for the compliments that you just gave us, but also we know as Africans you are well prepared to speak from your heart. But go ahead, finish your point. Well, I was just going to say, if you bear with me, I would like to start out by telling a story that I heard on the National Public Radio the other day from a sister. And I'm assuming the story was written by the sister, but it's a story about how in college she signed up to go to study biology and anthropology and zoology in Africa, in Kenya. And she was surprised to find out that when she got to Kenya, she was the only African in the class coming off the plane from America. Anyway, she, of course, was proud of being an African, so she immediately integrated into the African community there, the Kikuyus. And she decided that one of the major problems the Kikuyus had was that they've heard about black people in America, but they had no knowledge of the history of these black people, how they got there, what they did, etc., etc. So she started off telling them about slavery and the slave experience, how they were stolen as groups of people from Africa how they were trafficked across the Atlantic, how they were enslaved in America, 
and the vicious treatment that they receive, not just in the United States, but throughout the Americas. And she went on, and this went on for a while, maybe a month. Then she decided that, well, you know, in America, it's not really like when we were in slavery. It's a little different today. Maybe I ought to talk about the good things that happened to us. So she went back to the Kukuyus and told them, well, you know, while we had this in our history, we're not suffering this today. Today, it's a little different. Today, we have much more freedom. We can do all kinds of stuff. We're not oppressed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We got money. We can buy stuff. And so she went on telling them this. Then about a week later, the same Kikuyu brothers, they came back to her and said, hey, you lied to us. You lied to us about black folks in America. We just heard that all the black folks drowned in America. So she told him, well, you know, you must have a misunderstanding. You you got something. It wasn't correct. I don't know what you're talking about. Because in those days, in the 1990s, it took a little longer for news to get, especially through the educational institutions, to Africa than it does today when you have, everybody has access to the Internet. So in those days, for the students who were transferred from the U.S., they had to wait about two weeks for news. So, okay, two weeks later, she got a package from her parents and everybody, and she opened her package. Everybody else opened their package, whatever they had. She had from her parents a copy of uh, Times Magazine. And on the front cover of Times Magazine was black bodies floating dead in New Orleans. This was right after Katrina. So she took the magazine immediately to the village. Well, it took a little while to get there, but she took it to the village and said, y'all were correct. Y'all were correct, this happened, this happened, but it was just a hurricane, and it was just in Louisiana. And they were saying, well, yeah, we know we're correct, and we just didn't understand why you didn't know we were correct. And we feel that it's our need to, you know, hug you and shelter you and warn you and protect you because there's things that's going on that you don't know. And I'm saying the story to say that it is the concept of this image that Amer- of America that is presented to us that confuses us in many ways. Today we look and we see something like Katrina or we see something like Brother George Floyd get killed. 
and we get very angry and upset, and we jump up for one week, two weeks, we mobilize. But after a certain period of time, we go back to sleep. We get dormant. And the basic reason for that today is that when we mobilize and we do the spontaneous mobilization, out of these mobilizations does not come the necessary organizations to liberate us. And this is where we have to begin to go. We have to look to organizations. We have to say, how can we ensure that what happened to Brother George Floyd never happened to any of us ever again? And we know by now, ever since all of these mobilizations, we know by now, mobilizations will not guarantee that. Only organizations can guarantee that. And I think this is where we should start our discussion today. This is what we need to look at. How do we build viable, progressive, revolutionary organizations, organizations that will take up the fight to change the current mentality that we have, to change how we look at succeeding, to change how we see the world. And I understand that you will probably have a brother coming on right after me who is a champion at doing that kind of organizing that we need. But, again, I'd just like to throw this out to raise it to the audience, to raise it to the Africa on the Move uh, collective. How do you see this difference? How can we move from mobilization, even mass mobilization, to concrete, long-range, progressive, and revolutionary organization. And that's what I want to know. Well, let's have the discussion with my political analysts and panelists. I'll start off with them first with this question. Brother Haki and Moses, how can we move in the area where we have more of a permanent aspect of organization? that would be capable of addressing the real concerns and needs in order to change this paradigm that we're living under. Y'all thoughts on that, Brother Haki, first then, Brother Moses. Well, I, I, I tell you, Boshi, that is the million-dollar question. You know, certainly one of the problems is there's a certain amount of legitimacy that goes with uh, uh, being a citizen of the United States in terms of actually uh, legitimizing the system. And so because we see, our, see ourselves as part of the system, we think that any problems that we encounter can be resolved by that very same system. And so, therefore, we don't make a distinction between the way the system functions and the level of oppression inflicted upon us. We, we, don't, we don't actually see the correlation between the two. We don't understand the causal effect in terms of, you know, the exploitation and what it does to us in terms of our, our, our quality of life here in America. We don't make that connection because we see ourselves as part of this. 
And this is this, this is a very difficult thing, because one of the things I got to tell you, brother, brother, Mo, uh, brother, um, brother Boshi, you know, when I hear Africans say, uh, you know, my nation, you know, uh, our, our nation, blah 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 blah, when they say that, and I'm like, you know, it's fine to say, okay, to claim this as your own, and that's fine. But when it comes when it comes to politics, in terms of correctly understanding, you know, what it is to be an African society. Once you start say validating the system and saying my country, our country, once you start saying that, then what you're doing in the, in the essence, what you're doing is legitimizing your own pursuit of self determination, and you got to ask yourself, is that intelligent? Is that a wise thing to do? But that's exactly what we do because we want to believe of in fact that we're that we're part of this, and there's no question about it. Conditioning has a big part, a big role in terms of why we continue to see ourselves as part of something that continues to oppress us, something that doesn't want us, something that alienates us, something that marginalizes us continuously. And yet our response is always, well, we're part of it. You know, that, that's always this question in terms of, or this perception in terms of legitimacy in terms of the way the system operates, that this, the system is not the problem, is if we just tweak a few, a, little, a few things here and there, uh, then maybe things could be all right, which explains why you have this mobilization. We, we have this problem with police brutality, people staying up raising a little hell for two or three months, and then we quiet again. Because they don't understand that in terms of the kind of obstacles that we're confronted with, they're systemic. We have to understand that. And and simply because being born here, and one of the things that Malcolm would say, you know, simply because, you know, you put a cat in, a, in, a, in, a, in an oven and bake them, doesn't make them a biscuit, doesn't by any stretch of imagination mean simply because you were born here that those people who, quote, unquote, see, quote, unquote, uh, uh, in America see you, particularly when it comes to the, political, uh, the elite, see you as American citizenry. In fact, as Mac would say, if in fact you were um, see as American citizenry, you wouldn't go through suppression. And so, so, it seems, so it seems to me, you know, um, you know we, we have to at some point begin to become more politically sophisticated and understand it's fine to say that you're part of this, but in deep in, in, in your heart of heart, also understanding that you have a separate struggle in terms of being free in the society. And until we get to that point where we begin to understand that, that we have an obligation to ourselves to struggle against injustice, then we keep legitimizing the same system that continues to oppress and marginalize us on a daily basis. And I got to say, the implications for our children. We, in the 21st century, our children are still caught up on this color thing. In the 21st century. Talked to a sister the other day. Uh, she's got a little seven-year-old. You know, seven years old who's caught up on this color thing. And so my question to her was, where did she pick that up at? Oh, well, she said, well, the sister's adamant. It wasn't something of her doing. It's something that she picked up, you know, with her friends, something she picked up on television, you know, so forth and so on. And that's legitimate. And, I, I, and certainly that does happen, which, 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 which underscored the question, why the, the importance in terms of why we have to have long-term organization. Because all those issues have to be addressed. They're not separate issues. Self-esteem is a big part in terms of, in terms of moving forward in society. You can't move forward if they got you thinking that color defines you as a human being. You can't organize with other people who look like you because you think that color defines you as a human being. The most you can expect in terms of, you know, in terms of the mindset we say is that color defines you as a human being, the most you can expect is a casual support. You don't expect long-term support. And so our struggle is for long-term support. But we have to, but the question in terms of self-esteem becomes so important. And so how do we, do, and how do we, how do we get that? How do we get that? We're talking about the stuff that we've been talking about in the 60s. In terms of importance, in terms of self-esteem, remember, Bush, remember we tried to, there were instances, particularly in New York, in, in North Philly, where we tried to create institutions to speak Swahili. The reason why we want kids to speak learn Swahili is because it gives them a, a sense of identity. That is important. 
So when society says that you're nobody based upon A, B, and C, the child can say I'm somebody based upon A, B, and C. And so what we want to do is empower the children in terms of, you know, to fight, you know, psychologically, emotionally, on an emotional level, to actually be prepared to fight against the system. Most people rejected the idea because their position was that we are American, we don't need to speak Swahili. Not understanding the implications, not understanding what we're trying to say to them, why this is so important. And so most parents would refuse to allow, allow their kids to even participate in those kind of programs. I came out of the East in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, New York, in Bed-Stuy. And I'm going to tell you, most of those brothers, most of those brothers, those brothers and sisters who had children weren't down with that, weren't down with that program in terms of what we, were trying to, what we were trying to do. And we tried to explain to them the necessity in terms of the self-esteem piece because it's a big part in terms of moving forward in society. So, so, so the question you asked, Brother Bolger, is it's a major question. You know, what, what does it take for us to begin to understand that you have that organization? But at some point, if you don't think that one that you're a capable organization, B or co- or organization is not for you, simply because you have a history of organization, or you think that somehow that uh, that we are powerless, you know, based upon our, our based upon our conditioning, then all all those things tend to negate against you know organization. And this and this is this is the, 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 the irony. We have to have larger organization because we understand clearly that the system is diametrically opposed to our survival. I don't know. I can't make it any clearer. When we talk about the economic realm, you talk about a system that systematically takes large sums of money and give it to the one-tenth or one-percent of the population, certainly the top ten, the top one-percent of the population, who have wealth, access to all the wealth, and you have access to none. What do you think the implication is for African people in society? When you talk about per capita income, when you compare white people to African people in society, white people on average are like $107,000. African people $17,000. Now, here's the irony. In less than, less than 20 years, it's going, to go down to the, 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 it's going to go down to zero. So we talk about a net worth of zero. So the last time we, our net worth was at zero is when our ancestors were enslaved. So we're headed backwards, big time. How do you get our people to understand the, the urgency and necessity of organization? It's, a, it's key. It's key. Without it, you can't move forward. And people told them, they say, well, you know, well, you, know you can talk about, you know, you people talk, 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 but what is the action? What are you going to do? Well, the problem is that in terms of facilitating or forming an organization or facilitating an organization, one of the things you have to do is have a common frame of reference. You have some understanding in terms of what you're doing and why you're doing it. You have to. And so, therefore, we talk about tactics and strategy, then we're clear in terms of why certain things have to be done. Then we understand the necessity of longevity in terms of organization. So it becomes a natural kind of inclination. But the problem is, if you don't understand that, the problem is that you know, you, you, you're trying to convince people that organizations is key, and they say, well, you know, uh, you know there's nothing in my history that suggests that organization is key. Then how do you confront that? How do you confront that? The objective reality is very, very clear. Economically, politically, socially, no matter what, 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 what parameter you use in terms of looking at the experience of African people in the society, they all point toward the negative. What does it take to make African people realize that this is serious business? This is not a joke. We can't, have, we can't, we, we can't even have those kind of discussions because even among those who's in our community who said they're conscious, they don't, they don't even understand the, 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 fullness, the, the, the fullness of the problem that we're confronted with. They don't understand it. It's the arrogance getting to the way, and so therefore they, they as a cause acknowledging they don't know, they must not rather expose that, that they don't know. They must rather pretend like they do know, but they're just not interested in terms of forming an organization. How do you confront all this stuff, Brother, Bo- Brother Boshi? It's a very good question. How do, how, do you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you confront all this stuff? 
how do you confront this insanity? You know, as, as you know, as the brothers say, you know, uh, the the definition of insanity is continuing doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. How do you change that paradigm? How do you get people to realize this? This is no joke out here. I don't, I, you know, I can't make it any clearer. You know, we talk about economics because we try to get because I think the key to getting people to understand the urgency of the situation is to talk about economics. We can talk about identity politics. We can talk about all array of issues that impact the African community. We can talk about lots of issues that, that impact the African community because they're all legitimate. But the bottom line is once you understand how the economic system works, then you understand the writing on the wall. And even then, I'm sitting listening the other day, the brother was talking about, uh, he said, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we, we resolve our problem by, facing, by, by starting a bank. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. That's, that's fine. You want to start a bank. That's, that's all and good. But, you know, but here's, the, here's the problem is that you starting that bank, it's not going to alleviate the problems, the very, very, very real uh, overwhelming problems that inside the African community. In fact, you might, in fact, make it, make it possible for some, a few Africans to make some money, and that's fine. But then how does that translate in terms of the empowerment of African people as, as a community? Because you might be wealthy. You might be doing well as an individual. But the bottom line, your children have to compete in a very unequal society, which means that your kid's ability to turn to be the best he or she can be is undermined because conditions are making it almost impossible for that kid to thrive, simply because the kid is conditioned to believe and certainly the, 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 the situation around him sort of gives some legitimacy to this notion that, in fact, that, well, maybe, you know, you know being intelligent, you know, you know, it's not for you. You know, maybe, you know, studying STEM, STEM you know, uh, is not for you. Maybe that's for someone else. And so we don't make the connection in terms of, you know, the overall system in terms of how it vastly impact, negatively impact on the psyche of African people. We don't get it for some reason. So we keep struggling in terms of trying to get people to understand the necessity and hope that people begin to grasp the necessity. I, I, I don't know, Brother Boshi, it's, it's a very difficult question. We have to have long-term organization. That is the only key. That is the only key. And not only that, I'll say this and I conclude. I've been talking long enough. I'll say this and I conclude. The thing but, is that also, but brother, I agree. Brother, I, I, I agree with get, you, Brother Hakeem. Before we get, Brother Bamboshi, before we get your response, let us get a response from Brother Moses. And then we're going to bring in our brother McCoskey. Okay. He's on the line now. So we're going to Moses. Then we're going to introduce right. the audience to a historical figure, Brother McCoskey, formerly known as Willie Ricks. So he'll be coming on behind Brother Moses. This is going to be a conversation of brothers talking to brothers. Brother Moses, what do you think? Why not brothers talking to brothers and sisters? Brothers talking to brothers and sisters, talking to the people. Thank you, brother. Brother Aki, you finished, brother Aki? Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 listen, I'll, I'll be talking in the next hour. I'm finished. I'm good. Thanks. Oh. Let's all go, right, let's all go right. To, um, let's go to Brother Moses, yeah, then we'll bring Brother McCarthy in. Go ahead, Brother Moses. Yeah, organization definitely is, is the key to it. That's the only real weapon we have as a working class um, in order to fight off the, the oppressor and, uh, and uh, certainly, as as African people, you know, we need organization. And I can definitely see see that you know, the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC) is a is a serious, dedicated, and long term, permanent organization that is fighting for the liberation of African people. And I, you know, there's no question in my mind about that. Uh, when I was 
introduced to uh, Pan-African Roots back years ago. Um, um, I um, I was reading uh, Brother Bob uh, um, uh, works on reparations, basically, uh, and um, that's when I that's when I I told him I said you know I smell I had to wake up and smell the coffee, you know, because I mean this was like some serious work being done uh, in terms of the liberation of, of people. And um, African people in particular, and but you know, no, African black skin cannot be free before white skin is free. We 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 just interlocked in this battle, and we have to apply scientific socialism, and that means dialectical and historical materialism as the underlying pendant of scientific socialism. Because without dialectical historical materialism. We we're gonna get lost, and um, so you know, my I'm, I I I will say up front, I come out of the Dr. Martin Luther King School, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School. We want all our rights, we want them here, and we want them now. And um, and that you know, I come out of that school of thought with, with John Lewis and people struggling for civil rights here in the U.S. of A. and um, and for revolution here in the U.S. of A. And um, you know, as a as a as a, uh, a strategic um, um, objective, um, I think you know, I, I I we have to multitask. It comes down. I I've, I've come to that determination. There's no way that um, that we can accomplish everything in 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 um, in one organization, basically, is what it comes down to. That we got to multitask. We got to we got to support a lot of organizations, basically. Um, and but we, but in terms of the parties, someone someone put it in my mind that you really should only belong to one party. Um, um, and um, so that's my dilemma in terms of uh, of um, in terms of working and united front work et cetera and 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 i'm I'm finding that you know that that's almost impossible you have to you have to belong to more than one organization i mean and because like um i I respect the power that we have and we have a power in the vote and uh, if I can do any if just do everything any means necessary and all means available in order to stop this fascism that is taking place with this trump in office and uh, in his agenda to be a dictator and to suppress and repress and and uh, to um, to abolish anybody who believes basically in um, what he said uh, Howard Zinn's book, uh, The People's History of the United States. He said concretely, he pointed out that book, and so you know his agenda is clear, and our agenda must be clear, and. Um, but organization, we definitely have to have organization. We cannot accomplish anything without organization. And the key to organization is communication as well, because an organization that has to be able to communicate to its members. And uh, um, so, you know, the, the struggle takes place on a lot of different levels. And, and um, I'm determined that 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 we can win this struggle, and that somehow. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to make a commitment. Commitment. Uh, um, but my. But 
I have a it's, it's, it's the sort of a back to Africa movement basically doesn't appeal to me, and um, and and so that's my dilemma. But in terms of the goals, objectives of scientific socialism, of course, I'm 100% on board. And uh, um, I don't know. I'm, you can see some of my contradictions in my mind from what I've been saying. And I hope, you know, I hope that um, other people, you know, who are struggling with the issue will come forth and speak speak, and bring clarity to the issue. Uh, we have to unite the many to defeat the few. Thank you. Excuse me. At this point in time, we're going to bring in our brother MacArthur. Some may know him back in the day as Brother Woody Ricks. Uh, he's a historical figure in his own right. So right now, for the first time, we want to welcome Brother Mikasa to Africa on the Move. And Brother Mikasa, before you speak to the question that Ben Bullshit posed earlier about uh, how can we create uh, organization, a permanent organization, to deal with the issue of freeing our people for the long run, how can we do this? We would like for you to first just briefly introduce yourself and tell the listening audience something about who is Brother Mikasa. Uh, Mukasa is a soldier for Africa, a soldier for African people, and I've been around for about 60 years, and I work with some of the great people that my man talked about a minute ago, John Lewis and and Dr. King and, and those guys and other soldiers for Africa, and we fought many battles together, and when we fought battles in Mississippi, Alabama, and Selma, um, we realized through people like Malcolm X that it was happening to more than us just in Selma, Alabama, or the United States. But the force that we were fighting was in Cuba, was in the Caribbean, West Indies, was in Africa. And that we cannot win this battle by fighting inside the United States because there's not but a few of us here. But if we unite with our brothers in Brazil and uh, South Pacific, Africa, the Caribbean, we will be a mighty, mighty, mighty force. And that uh, the same thing, or even worse things, is happening to our people on our continent, Africa, and in the Caribbean, wherever we are in the world. And the forces that's raping us and killing us and starving us communists and multinationals and these corrupt governments in Europe, United States, Arab countries, and um, other countries is raping Africa. We come from the richest land in the world. And that the Chinese got free or liberated when they took over China and all other nations, Vietnam, when they fought and took over Vietnam, they got a land base. Now, whether we all go back to Africa, that's another question. But if we liberate Africa, we can make Africa desirable where we would, many, many people will want to go back and gladly go to Africa, whether they stay or go visit. But if we have a strong Africa like China, can protect, feed, clothe its people wherever they are in the world. And that's what we need Africa to do. 
employ us, educate us, train us, and have an economic base that would be strong and as strong as any uh, economic force in the world. And so when we talk about freedom, we're talking about uh, Brazil. Government can't free the people in Brazil because they're the ones oppressive. The United States government, um, the Democrats, Republicans, all these people are the same people. And they all want white colonialism, white power, uh, and that we can't look to them uh, even when we try to vote. You're not voting for nothing but colonialism and imperialism, and don't nothing change. And everybody who changed anything are those who have organized and won the minds of their people, and in many cases picked up weapons or whatever it took to drive the enemy off of their land. So I'm saying in very simple terms that if we get toilets for all our people, we got to build them. If we get food and three, four meals and enough food for our people, we got to grow it and develop it. If we get justice, we got to give our own self-justice, not wait on our enemy to give us justice. So I'm saying the liberation of Africa and the unity of African people to be able to help and solve the problems that we face today. And I'm saying the United States is guilty of genocide. Look what they're doing to us. How do we want to get along with these people? They, when, when Biden and, and uh, uh, Trump debate, they don't debate over who dropping bombs on Cuba or dropping bombs on Cuba. They agree. They don't debate over who raping Africa and stealing our diamonds and gold and oil and silver and copper. They agree. They don't debate on the oppression of the people in Haiti and stealing millions like Hurricane stole $2, 3000000000 billion from Haiti. They agree. So how can we look for good white folk, bad white folk? Well, that's just a slave mentality, a slave looking for a good slave master. No, we don't supposed to do nothing like that. You're supposed to drive the slave master off your land. So I'm saying, Africans, if we got a problem, we got to solve it. We got to talk among ourselves, fight among ourselves, educate among ourselves, and come together. And all of us need to learn how to go out and organize and talk to people where we can get the youth to begin to look toward Pan-Africanism. Get the youth to look toward Africa. And this is what we have to do. And we have to be very strong and very loving and brutal in getting our people to come together and to fight together and to love each other. But the United States and the capitalistic system uh, is the enemy and it must be destroyed and there's no compromise. So that's basically what I have to say. I say that we need pan Africanism. We need unity of our people worldwide, and we need a land. And Africa is that land, and it's the richest land in the world that together, we, with Africa, we can solve every problem that we have and not look to our enemy to solve our problems. They make the problem. Thank you. You know, Brother Mikasa, we know, or those who have, Look at your history. You have a history of being the various organizations. You understand the necessity of organization. Brother Bamboshi, can you frame your question again about this organization question in the context to have Brother McCarthy address it as well? 
Uh, I can try, bro. I mean, you know, Picasso is correct that when we look at this situation, we tend to look at it as if somebody else is going to create an organization that's going to free us. I think Brother Moses kind of said the same thing, and definitely Brother Haki said the same thing, that we need to build permanent organizations that if we die tomorrow, the organization continue in the direction that we think it should continue in. That if we sell out tomorrow, it will kick us to the side, maybe do a little worse, but it will continue going towards the same objective that we initially set and continuing the struggle in that direction. Permanent organization. That's what we talk about. Picasso, we're raising the context yeah. so you can't. How do we create permanent organizations for the long term? Uh, how do we move our people to that towards that direction? But I would like to add one other word to permanent organizations. Not only does it have to be permanent and be your organization, but also must be revolutionary as well. Because we don't need no permanent reform organization. They must be revolutionary. So we'd like to hear your well, we uh, response to how do we move our people towards this necessity for a permanent revolutionary organization that will be able to deal with our issue and pressure for the long run. Well, we got permanent organization that's oppressing us, worldwide organization that's oppressing us. And it's been permanent ever since we know that it done nothing but rape, rob, and steal from us and oppress us, steal our minds, steal our ideas, steal everything from us. And matter of fact, we even build permanent organizations uh, for different people. Like, for an example, when we build the Islamic organization, uh, it's mosques and all those kinds of things, uh, they permanent. And you go build that mosque and you fight to go to uh, paradise then even if some of the people in there fall off, the institution that you build continue to try to get people to paradise. And the churches, they permanent organization, they find the ideology of Jesus and what have you. And all of them, they stay there and just continue. And when they fall off, their children carry it on and their children carry it on. And that's the correct idea. And we need to have that idea for us, like China. When the Chinese Revolution started, Mao Zedong and all them, most of all them old guys have passed on and gone, but their children continue to carry on the Chinese Revolution, and they continue to move toward being one of the greatest powers and the greatest developments in the world. And that we in Cuba doing the same thing. Castro started in 1957, and now the Cuban Revolution is stronger now and the people are stronger now and carry on those ideals and philosophies uh, more now than the world 50 years ago. They're influenced and doing great things. So while we can be and do something for ourselves, while we can't do for ourselves, so we got to go to our children, go to the games, go send people inside the jails, to uh, go inside them jails and educate them brothers, give them ideals, ideology, give them philosophy, of freedom and liberation and love and kindness for our own people and 
we began to work to the, to build that and bring the good and the righteous out of our people. It's there, but our enemy does everything they can to keep us from hearing each other, keep us from coming together. That's why they killed Martin Luther King. That's why they tried to co-op John Lewis and say this is where John was and take him away from working for the liberation and freedom of our people. We don't believe in this system. This system raped us, robbed us, and murdered us, and now we got to go out to the mass of the people and see how we can go out and talk to them. So all of us got to learn how not just to make the great quote of Nkrumah and all our great people, but we got to go out and build institutions and teach it to our people and where they began to live it and go out and organize and began to build institutions that would guide our people toward Pan-Africanism, guide them toward fighting for the liberation of our people. We have to teach them who the real enemies are and who the real people that love and care for us, like Gaddafi loved and cared for us. Kwame Nkrumah, Lumumba, and, 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 and all these other people, they care for us, but the enemy makes sure that very few of us know their name. But if you work against us, they'll make your name very popular. And that's what they have done for us. So I'm saying, yeah, we need to organize, like my boys say. We need to teach our people, and we need people that can go to the people and work with them and guide them and direct them. We need to go inside the gangs and, and those little organizations and begin to put philosophies in them of unity. That's why they were so scared of the us in the 60s, because black power was, everybody wanted some black power, including the gangs and, and everybody in every alley and revolutionaries around the world. And it was a symbol of us, but coming us together through that slogan that was leading us toward Africa and Pan-Africanism. And the enemy went in and destroyed every leader, or most of the leaders that were fighting for Pan-Africanism, they assassinated them and put many of our brothers in jail or isolated them and did everything against them. They do everything to preserve their system, and we have to do everything to preserve our lives, our culture, our history. We have to have Africa. That's basically what I want to say. Ben Bush, you want to say? Say that again, Bill. I said you were going to say something earlier. The mic is yours. I wasn't going to say anything earlier, but I can say right now that, you know, one, Brother Mukasa came on, he told you who he was. He was very modest. He didn't really tell you all of who he is, all of what he has done. I know that many of you have heard that Brother Mukasa was one of the forward organizers in the march in Mississippi that raised the cry for the black power. We know him from that. Many of you know Brother Mukasa from the Black Panther Party era. We know him from that. But I don't know if many of you know Brother Mukasa for the work that he has done in Africa. I don't know if many of you know Brother Mukasa. Well, many of you may have known Brother Mikasa from the work that he has done inside the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. But the work that he has done in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Tennessee, in Georgia, in 
Louisiana, all through the South. There's practically no little community, no city, no town that you can go to in the South where if you say Mukasa Willie Ricks, you don't hear somebody say, you mean that brother always talk about black power? You mean that brother always talk about African brother and African sister? Mukasa is a legend. And I think he has a lot to offer to your audience and to the people who are listening. And I would give the rest of the time to Mikasa because I'm sure you can say it not just better than me, but he knows it better than me. So I turn over the mic. Brother Mikasa, one of the things for our listening audience, can we get your understanding and definition concept of what is black power and what is that black power relationship, what is its relationship is to the concept of Pan-Africanism? Well, black power, what is Pan-Africanism and black power relationship to people being in jails and prisons? What is black power and Pan-African relationship to people being hungry? What is black power and Pan-African relationship to roaches and rats crawling in your house? What's black power relationship to your mom and daddy being broke up and not being together? What's black power relationship to your children not having their father in their house? What black power relationship and Pan-African relationship to drugs being in your neighborhood? What pan what black power and pan African relationship to the people in Haiti starving to death and being raped by United Nations children? What's black power and pan African relationship to Hillary Clinton and uh, going to Haiti and killing people and with uh, uh, creating governments and black Uncle Toms and, and people that murder and hold guns on their own people where the European, America, and, and the oil companies and the rich people go there and take the resources and hold the people in slavery and rape the women as they want to. That's going on right now. What's the uh, uh, Pan-Africanism and Black Power's relationship to us being taught lies in school, going to the worst schools in the world? What's Black Power and Pan-African relationship for us being so divided and, and, and being lied to and confused every day by the news, by the information that the United States government do to us. What's black power and pan-African relationship to them starving and putting an embargo and starving the people in Cuba and, and, and uh, Nicaragua and, and, and uh, Zimbabwe and dropping bombs on uh, Yemen <clears throat> and, and the rape of Africa? What's black power's relationship to every little problem that you have in the day as black people and being feeling alone and, 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 and not being part of, of, of nothing, uh, uh, that's black power's relationship. A black power relationship is for us to have enough school, enough schools, enough clothes, enough food, and enough things that it takes for us to survive. So we're talking about very simple things. So many black people, so many people in the world starving to death right now because they don't have food 
and they're being starved because they're being raped by the rich, rich, rich people that's stealing for billions and trillions out of Africa and all the other parts of the world. So when you talk about black power and pan-Africanism, it's very simple. It's talking about being able to feed, clothe, educate, give medicine, make our children the most intelligent children in the world, give our children reasons for them not to rob and kill and hurt each other, give our people strength enough to stop the drugs from coming in our neighborhood and being flooded in our neighborhood by the government and all the other forces that bring drugs in our neighborhood to keep us divided and to keep us weak and all that. So we talk about very simple things and terms that everybody can understand. We're not using those big words that you don't know. We're talking about simple things. Are you hungry? Do you have enough food? Is the education system open up for you where you can go to school and get the best education absolutely free? Then that's what we want to do. We want to make it where you, black people, African people, can be on top of the world. All our women should have defined dresses, underclothes, uh, 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 refrigerator full of food, and those kinds of things. You shouldn't be ripped off by no rent man and, and those kinds of things. So when we talk about pan-Africanism, we just, when we say black power, uh, that's for us all over the world. When we say pan-Africanism, that means that I'm not just concerned about myself being hungry right here in Atlanta or Alabama or Mississippi, but I realize that my brother was scattered all over the world on the slave ship. So my twin brother in Cuba, my twin brother in the South Pacific, or in the Caribbean, Jamaica, and Haiti, and all that, we all catching the same hell from the same people. And black power and pan-Africanism means, and socialism means that we come together and kick the butt of those that's hurting us. Yes, we need to burn down all the prisons. We need to systematically burn down all the jails. We need to systematically destroy all the courthouses that's robbing us in these courthouses every day. We need to systematically get rid of all the drugs that are flooded in our neighborhood. We need to systematically get rid of the rent man and the light bill man and give everybody these kinds of things that they need. So when we talk about these other uh, big terms like Pan-Africanism, uh, we're talking about the very simple things of life that it takes for people to survive. We're saying if Africa is the richest land in the world, then the people of Africa should be the richest people in the world. Just like why we can't be great and powerful and united like China have a united China. Why we need 50 different presidents, all of them weak, and if we come together and have one president and all of us stand in front of them or beside them and behind them and show them what we want to do and send them out to do it like Chinese do, why we can't be that powerful? Why we can't be united? Because the forces that don't want us to have 
prepared African is. That means all African people, all black people coming together and sitting down and marching in a straight line together. That's what we're talking about doing. Our people are hungry. We're the hungriest people in the world right now, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And you're hungry and you're poor because your land, the richest land in the world, has been raped for centuries and centuries and centuries. And they continue to rape and rape and rape. And they're setting it up machines to rape it even more. You die. They're making you die. Just like they did the so-called Native Americans here, your people, Africans, so-called Indians, brothers and sisters, they committed genocide on them. They committed genocide on Africa now. They committed genocide on Yemen and Palestine and other places all over the world. These are killers. And the only thing we know to stop it is us coming together worldwide, and we call that Pan-Africanism. And this Pan-Africanism means that we so we're going to get a fair economic system and we're going to create enough mango trees where everybody have mango, everybody have milk, everybody have food, and everybody have be inside of an institution not to make you a prison, but to make you educated, train you to be a doctor, train you to be an engineer, train you to love and care for black people, love and honor black women. Guide and love our children. So this is what we mean by Pan-Africanism. We mean, yeah, the gangs out there, all them little brothers in the gang, come together and be our leaders and, and be the leaders of Pan-Africanism. You know how to organize. Come together and let's guide us. Come together and not point your gun at, at, at each other like the enemy wants you to do. We will point our guns only at the enemy that come to hurt our people and rob our people, but we will take over the diamond mines and the gold mines, and you will run them. But Africa is our land. And those of you that believe in God and and, 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 and Jesus and all that, God gave us Africa. God gave us the richest land in the world, the most true land in the world. God gave us intelligence. Well, we could build great empires and kingdoms that you don't even know about no more. You did so many great things a thousand and thousands of years ago. But the Europeans and the capitalist system, they they blew it up, burned it down, and erased your history where you don't know it. You don't know who you are. You don't know you're a Mandingo and who are the Mandingo? Who are the Wallows? Who are we? Where do we come from? What empires did we build? What kingdoms did we build? What contribution did we make to the world? And if they cut that off, well, we would think we were dumb, and they would make us slaves and, and go along with what they do. We need an army, yeah. We need to be in the army, in our own army, not fighting for somebody else, but fighting for ourselves. So this is what we mean by Pan-Africanism, unity for our people and solving every problem that we have. Don't look to your enemy. Don't look to no going out there trying to find a good white man. This white man's better than this white man. Ain't all of them the same. Ain't a nickel worth of difference 
between um, them folks running for president. They all the same, all in the same bed, and each one of them, mom and dad and grandmama, and killed the native people, had you in slavery, raped, robbed, and tricked you, and continue to do it, and you know it. And now we're looking for a good white man to come save us. You know this country ain't got no good in it. If you're looking for some good in the United States government, you're looking fool. So I'm saying that to say that Pan-Africanism just means that we hold hands and love all our people in the world and come together to fight. And look at what our problem is, how we solve the problem, and start working toward it. This is all we mean by Pan-Africanism, and black power don't mean nothing but Pan-Africanism. It's all just terms that we calling for unity and calling for us to be strong. And if we're going to be strong, we have to have a land, and that land is Africa. Africa. So that's basically what I talk about when I say black power, pan-Africanism, or say we Africans, African brother, African sister. We're African people, and we have to come together. And the first thing we need to do is to love each other, care for each other, help each other, guide each other. And each one of you who talk about the movement or talk about revolution, how many troops do you have? How many young boys and girls are you working with every day? How many people are you going to and talk about and sit down with every day on a daily basis? What's your organizational skills? What is your organizational skills? What is your people-to-people skills? How many people are you turning toward the movement? How many people are you turning toward the revolution? And y'all got to be helpful, each one of you. And each one of you, or everybody can hear our voice, you got to at least put a nickel, dime, or a dollar toward some kind of movement, toward the struggle, just like your mama and grandmama put money in the church uh, toward going to heaven and building that institution, then each one of us got to have the same commitment to build Africa, to build revolution. And we need your help. I need your help. I've been out here 60 years trying to say what I'm saying to you right now. And that we can't do it by ourselves. One person can't do it. We got to do it. And I need help. We need help. And the movement, Cuba needs help. Venezuela needs your help right now. The United States is uh, trying to drop bombs on them, trying to starve them to death, trying to kill them, trying to destroy the government just like they're doing in Cuba. And Cuban people look just like me and you. My daughter's married to a little girl that was born in Cuba. And you are see, listen to the crimes that the United States is committing. They do doing stuff trying to keep them from having water. Okay. Oh, my um, son is back. Brother McCarthy, my wife just corrected me. Your wife did what? My wife, yeah, I said my daughter's married to a girl from Cuba. I mean, my son is married to a girl from Cuba. Okay. My son married a beautiful young lady from Cuba. And I'm just saying Brother that the Africans in Cuba. Go ahead, finish your point, Brother McCarthy. Finish your point. I said my uh, son is married to a beautiful little African girl in Cuba, and she's uh, African, and we Africans, and we born all over the world. We just speak different languages sometimes, whatever the slave master make us speak, whatever white man or slave master get us, 
They make us talk like them and won't let us speak our African language anymore. So my daughter-in-law, she spoke Spanish because they were enslaved and murdered and uh, by the Spanish. And my son speaks England because we were killed and murdered by the white folk called themselves Englishmen. But although we are all over the world speaking different languages as a slave master, even in Africa, so many of us have to speak that language. They dominate us in every way. And what I'm saying, we need to start dominating ourselves and make ourselves felt in the world. We need to be felt in the world by being strong and together and, and, and going out preaching the truth. And we need help from everybody. We can't do it by ourselves. Bambosha, all of us been out here for years just trying to let people know that black is beautiful. Let people know that your hair, your nose, the enemy make you Africans. They talk and treat us so bad and make us think we are so ugly. I remember when I was a little boy, only black history we got was little black Sambo. Uh, they told us monkeys in Africa was Africans. That was us in Africa. And those kinds of things. They made us think that black was ugly. And that many people use the word when we describe our hair right now, we say bad hair. And that the more uglier they think you are, make you think you are, then the more money they make off you. The more they make you think your hair's ugly, the more wigs they sell. The more they think you make you think that your skin is ugly, the more stuff you put on your face and make it look white. Uh, lipstick and all kind of other stuff you hide your face with, uh, uh, makeup and all that. But they make money off of you thinking you ugly. They make money off of you being a drug addict. They make billions off of you being a drug addict and doing those kinds of things. So let us destroy that kind of philosophy and let's create a philosophy of love, unity, and, and revolution. Revolution just means to have start having good thoughts, good ideas about your people and your kind. We need help. We need help. And I want to tell you that I've been fighting and I fight the enemy, but many times the enemy send people to look like me to fight me. I've been beat up by black police. And that they're sending uh, black people to do you in, to bring you in, to hold you down, and you trying to fight for the same people. But they brainwash us. Even in Africa today, they have probably created the United States and Europe, got 50 or 30 or 40 different armies with guns and bombs and even airplanes, machine guns holding on their own people where Europe and the United States and all these companies, the uh, uh, telephone companies and the car companies and the oil companies coming into Africa, getting all them different millions of resources, and the people that get the stuff get richer and richer and richer, and the people who got the stuff and work to get the stuff to the Europe, to the United States, even in Africa, they get poor and poor, and the people that steal our stuff, they began to have Cadillacs and Cadillacs and airplanes and cell phones and factories and industries. But the people who got the stuff in the ground in their country, they don't even have a toilet or a bathroom to go in. So I'm talking about units of African people. 
And that's the best I know to say it. And But I think we all have to say it together. And once we come together and we work together to do it, like we've been trying to do for the last 50, 60 years, uh, uh, but we got people all over the world. And that some got 10, 20, some got 5, some got whole government. And we continue to try to come together. And the FBI, CIA, and all the different forces of the United States and Europe, uh, they could, who could, same people that killed Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, the same people that, that beat John Lewis down are the same people that continue to hold us and, and enslave us and keep us divided. So I, that's the case where I want to say. All right, Brother McCarthy and our panelists and Brother Bamboshi, we're going to do this. We're going to take a break right now. Matter of fact, we're going to make a transition to African unity. We're going to play a segment dealing with African unity by Brother Kwame. And when we come back, we'll have to continue the discussion dealing with this whole question of brothers speaking to brothers and sisters. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Requires some plain speaking. And for the sake of Africa, let us speak plainly. As I see, our greatest danger stems from disunity and the inability to see that the realization of our hopes and aspirations, the realization of our objective of total African independence and of our future progress and prosperity is inextricably bound up with the necessity to unify our policy and actions in connection with the continuous struggle for independence and the greater tax of economic and social construction beyond it. We need unity within the ranks of independent states. We need unity within the ranks of the freedom fighters still struggling to achieve independence. And we need unity between the already independent states and the freedom fighters. I do not think that too much stress can ever be laid upon this need for unity. It is our unity that imperialist agencies are trying every means to obstruct and sever. It is the idea of African unity that they fear most. It seems only intelligent, therefore, for us to close our ranks 
and compact our forces. If we independent states were unified in a political and economic union, having a common foreign and defense policy, controlling a unified military command, you should be in a much stronger position to assess the territory self-sovereign for independence. An overall economic plan covering an Africa united on a continental basis must increase our total industrial economic power. Hence, our combined strength, reinforced by a common purpose, would add enormously to the united front we, we could stand against the enemy. So long as we remain disunited, so long as we remain balkanized, whether regionally or in separate national units, we shall be at the mess of imperialism and colonialism. We must therefore face the issue of African unity now. For only unity will make the artificial boundaries and regional demarcations imposed by colonialism obsolete and superfluous. African unity will thus provide an effective remedy for border disputes and international troubles. In a united Africa, there could be no frontier claims between Ethiopia and Somalia, or between Zanzibar and Kenya, Guinea or Liberia, or between Ghana, Togoland and the Ivory Coast. Because, because we would regard ourselves as one great continental family of nations. Among the new states in Africa are some which, through fragmentation, have been left so weak economically that they are unable to stand on their own feet. This is the result of a deliberate policy of the withdrawing colonial powers who have created in Africa several small, feeble, unstable, and unbearable states in the hope of ensuring their continued dependence upon the former colonial power for economic and technical aid. Indeed, the intention goes further than that, and is more insidious. It is to produce a political atmosphere as dangerous to the safety and progress of African independence as that which followed the establishment of the many friable nations which were created in Eastern Europe by the Congress of Vienna in 1814 to 1815. The underlying design is to induce national jealousies and rivalries such as nourish the outbreak of the First World War. At best, it is hoped that such a policy may lead to open conflict. At worst, it must present tough obstacles to the movement for total African freedom and African unity. This is the inner plan of new colonialism, the latest instrument of imperialism. While relinquishing political rule, it contrives to control the foreign and internal policy of the state. It still dominates through the pastoral of material aid. In effect, only the outward forms have changed, but the substance 
of colonialism remains just the same. Foreign imports are still protected. Local development is clamped down. Social progress is retarded. And fiscal policy is controlled from the metropolitan capital. The impact of these semi-independent states on the liberation of Africa is calamitous. Bound up as they are with the policies of their sponsors, they are unable to take a determined, independent line on issues involving the colonialists and the still enslaved people of this continent. Some of the leaders, it must be confessed, do not see the struggle of their brother Africans as part of their own struggle. Even if they did, they would not be free to express their solidarity. This rift are consciously created by the imperialists between Africans, where they can sit back and watch with sly satisfaction, as well as contempt for those who fail to see how they are being used against Africa's best interests. Regrettably, regrettably, those states include some who were among the freedom fighters of yesterday and who haven't won their independence are willing to drop it for some token aid and thereby deny to those still struggling for freedom even their moral support. Here is a phenomenon against which all African freedom fighters must be on their guard and resist with the utmost. Even though I appreciate the difficulties facing us, I must admit, I find it strange to watch some of us returning willingly to the colonialist fold. This time, they don't even have the excuse of being forced to subject themselves to foreign domination. It makes one wonder, why so much effort and sacrifice and so many lives were given up to the achievement of independence in the first place, if it can only be so quickly and easily surrendered. Unhappily for us, colonialism creates in some intellectual allegiances which are not severed at the moment of independence, but remain to condition loyalties away from Africa towards the metropolis which draws them. They are unable to disappear, to accept the idea that Africans can get together to make a viable and growing concern of a combined African continent, but rather see their salvation in coming together in association like the Franco-African community mooted recently at Bangu. Although there are many here who speak English, French, Spanish, or Portuguese, Nevertheless, we are all Africans. And Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. 
throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal no system does the person who betrays themselves goes to the mud but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on if a system fell because of betrayal Christianity would have been finished with Judas at least Judas had the dignity to hang himself yeah yeah <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say... Please summarize that we might have... No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. No, I'm watching my clock. I'm irresponsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock right here. In fact, I can say it in two words. Black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one. Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. 
So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. You listen to Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana, and Brother Kwame Toure. Uh, they were talking about this whole question of Africa, African unity, Pan-Africanism, Socialism, all the things that would be in the best interest of African people to struggle towards and for. Right now, we will continue our discussion, brothers speaking to brothers and sisters, with Brother Mikasa and Brother Bambosha with our panelists. Brother Mikasa, you just heard um, some of the clippings from the past from Nkrumah and Brother Kwame Ture. Um Speaking of the past, you have a history of being one of the youth back in the early 60s fighting for the right for African people to be um, able to vote in this country. Can you give us your perspective on the power to vote and wasn't that the vote is a tool that should be used at all times and all conditions? For example, many people argue that if you're African today and you don't vote, then you're going against your people. What do you make of make up this whole um, phenomenon of the so-called voting process under this particular capitalist system in America, Brother McCarthy. Well, when we was out here fighting these white folks sitting in and all that, um, somebody come up and said, well, we need to, they were beating us, bombing us, bombing our churches and fighting us in the streets if, and, and putting guns on us, putting us in jail. And somebody said, we need to vote these people out of office. And we tried to uh, register people to vote. They threw dynamite at us, burned down churches, burned down schools, killed and assassinated people, murdered people in broad daylight. I mean, a bunch of people, more than one. Uh, uh, lynched people like Chaney Swan and Goodman, and you could name many other people that they murdered. But when we would go in these cotton fields and go to these areas and tell people to, uh, about voting, we really was using that to open up some more doors and just using that as an instrument. For an example, we started the sit-in movement and started talking about how white folks were treating us and not letting us sit here or, or go into these bathrooms or whatever. We used that to say, look what you're doing to the maid. How are you going to have people working in your house and paying them $3 a day? How are you going to have people working on jobs next to white people, making half of what the white people make. How are you going to have uh, uh, 
all this injustice going on in the courts and putting our people in jail. A, a woman could be raped, and if she called, tell the police and call the white man a lie, they put her in jail. <clears throat> so we was using that, began to bring up everybody else, began to show that they had complaints. So we started voter registration. It was a federal law that said people could register to vote. But all the states said, hell no. And the federal law wasn't protecting them. So what we would do, we would use voter registration and go out and organize people to try to register to vote and push the contradiction between the state and the federal government. And every time they deny people the right to vote, the federal government have to come investigate. And so while us pushing that, we began to look at sharecropping where people work all year, and at the end of the year they get paid, but instead of paying them, they would say that they owe them money and look at all the injustice that the, that people had. And we just used that as an instrument knowing that, uh, and we tried to take it over. When we started the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the uh, Council of Democrats and Republicans wouldn't let us in their party, the Democrats were throwing dynamite at us, and that, and both of them were, as a matter of fact. So we didn't give a damn about that, but we knew that we could just push the contradiction. So we used voting to just push the contradiction and not for no good white folks to come save us and all that. And then when we, areas that we took over, like in South Alabama, we took over many cities and counties. But we took them over. We didn't have nothing. We couldn't solve no problem. They had laws that you couldn't do certain things. The sheriff had to put black boys and children in jail and all that, so didn't nothing change. And then when we started letting people to vote, the people with the biggest lie and the biggest trick and the ones who didn't give a damn about our people, and uh, who could tell the biggest lie and had the most money and talk the most pop, they could trick our people, and the people go vote for them. And time they vote for them, they get on the side of the white people that we fought, that we uh, was fighting against or getting them to go help. When we get a black police, they send that same police back to put us in jail. And that's so we didn't get nothing out of it. So I'm saying that even... Though we made it where we could vote, we took over the city of Atlanta. But when we took over the city of Atlanta, the politicians, they got rich, but they let and stood by and watched the black community get poor and poor. And many of them stood by helpless and helped the whites put the blacks out the city. Just like in Washington, D.C., as strong as Marion Barry was, we lost the city. As strong as Maynard Jackson supposed to be in and Andy when they was in Atlanta. They joined in and helped them put us out the city and make the city more white and gave the white people our communities. So freedom is not on no ballot. Freedom is something that you win and take. And when you voting for Democrat or Republican, you still voting for imperialism. You're still voting for capitalism. You're still voting for white domination. Even if you have a black face in there, 
running the government, or in head of the government, you still fighting for white domination. For an example, Obama, as nice a guy as he was, he dropped bombs on Africa. He dropped bombs on Libya and killed thousands, tens of thousands, and they still dying. He dropped most more bombs than all the other presidents did. He was a black president, but he was carrying out the will of imperialism, the will of his white master. And that's what all these politicians do. They have no intentions of helping us. And I don't know nowhere in the world where the people voted and got free. They don't put freedom on no ballot. Imperialism ain't on no ballot. Imperialism running the election. They just put some black faces here to carry out the wheels of imperialism. So won't nothing change. Ain't nothing change through no voting. And you know it, and I know it. So I'm saying I don't give a damn about no vote. I want to do like Castro did in Cuba. I like Lumumba in the Congo. Get organized and take your government. I like Kwame Kumano's. Get organized and take your government. Like the people in Guinea, tell the French to end a colonialism and slavery over us. And I know that when we vote, all of them, the Democrats, every one of them, every one of them, I don't care if they're black or white, all of them got to send troops and armies to further enslave Africa. All of them. So if they go enslave Africa, if they're going to drop bombs on Africa, if uh, our black face going to continue to help the imperialists take out diamonds, gold, oil, rubber, zinc, if, they, if, the, if a, a black and a white face together going to continue to fill the jails and prisons up with our young men to continue to make us jobless and hungry, then I'm not for it. So I don't see no freedom, justice, inequality on no ballot. So I'm not a, uh, I don't believe in the vote. I know it's a bunch of bull and a bourgeois expression of nothing. They intend to do nothing for us and that we got to do for ourselves. And I think that voting sometimes put our people to sleep. They think if they go out there one day and get a white man they vote, they ain't got to do nothing else for the, for the next four years until the same white people come lie to them, trick them, and get them to go out to some ballot and all that. So if the ballot was in a good and the vote was in a good, they wouldn't allow us to do it. And that you got elements even inside this country with guns and bombs, and they ready to try to take over or kill thousands and thousands of us like they have done before. And our lives are in danger. They might start shooting tomorrow. They already start shooting. But they might go out in, in, in mass, killing us in mass, over these elections And what do we get from it We don't get nothing But we out here fighting And getting on the front line For the Democrats Against the Republicans uh, Just like when France And Britain was fighting France went into Senegal And got thousands Hundreds of thousands of Africans And put them on the front line With some guns that didn't work And over 100,000 Africans died Were uh, fighting for different white people so they ready to put us on the front line fighting for the Democrats or Republicans, and we go out there and get killed, and we get absolutely nothing for it. So I'm saying freedom comes from those who liberate themselves, and that's the way I see it, and not just by going casting a vote 
for some Uncle Tom or somebody that's in a white man's party. We need to uh, build our own party. The base, that's why I want to say about that. Okay, we're going to go to our political panelists. They've been waiting for a while, listening in, and Brother Haki, anything that has been said so far that you'd like to speak to, Mike is yours. I'm sorry, Brother Alfred. Say again? The mic is yours. Anything you'd like to respond to or raise questions with Brother McCarthy or what have you in terms of discussion? The mic is yours. No, no, no. I, uh, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with everything the, uh, the brother articulated. You know what I mean? Uh, what him and Bush say is right on point. Uh, one of the things is that when escapable reality is that, you know, we, we are an oppressed people. And it's a simple question of how people come to the realization that we are an oppressed people. Uh, of course, one of the things I, I, I may take exception with is this notion in terms of being uh, being uh, love all your all your enemies. Well, I don't know about that. Might be taking it a bit far as far as I'm concerned. Uh, certainly, I res- I respect everybody, but as far as loving all loving my enemies, no, nah, I can't do that. Uh, for me, somebody uh, said uh, that, I, huh? Somebody no, no, no. Said that's, that. that's that's the, huh? I said I thought somebody had said that. No, no, the implication, the implication from what you're saying, you talk about um, in important terms of loving your people. And my position is that, yeah, well, I mean, that's fine, but my position is that, no, I I respect all my people, but as far as loving all my people, I can't say that. And I, I would never say that. Simply because reality mm-hmm. is that what you alluded to when you talk about the fact that the class schism that exists in the African community, those Africans and positions of power don't have the interests of African people at large, and they play ball simply because they understand as long as they play ball with the power structure, there's benefits to be had. And so, therefore, the needs and aspirations of African people become unimportant. And so, therefore, their reality is I can never love a person like that. I only can respect them, but I can never love them. So that's the only, only thing I want. That's the only thing I wanted to say. Well, we agree with you. We hate, we hate neo-colonialism and imperialists and all them different elements that hold up imperialism. They are our enemy, and and they will destroy us. If we don't destroy them, I agree with you 100%. We got to come together. And those forces that hold up imperialism, they're the enemy. And that uh, we know they're brood. We know they kill and murder people all over the world every day. And we know that we will have to deal with them one day. And we're going to be confronted with them. And the first thing they're going to do is send black folks out to bomb us and kill us, uh, just like they got African all over Africa. Black armies all over Africa at the will of France, Britain, and the United States to kill and murder Africa for only saying we want to be free. So I okay, let's go. let's go to our next political panelist today, Brother Moses. Any questions, comments you may have? The mic is yours, Brother Moses. All right. Brother um, Moses? Um, it's, yeah. It's it's been a very very good uh, um, interesting insights into the shades and the differences nuances of the of the movement uh, for scientific socialism and you know there yeah, before we can unite in order that we may unite first clear lines of demarcation must be drawn as D. I. Lennon said and so it is good that we iron out uh, uh, where. What what we see and um, and uh, unite where we can unite around a united front of common interests and uh, that's basically what's going on. Uh, 
Thank you. Okay, Thank you. before we make our transition for the day or for the night, we'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, October the 12th. Many people have proclaimed it a um, so-called Columbus Day while the revolutionary forces are claiming it to be a day or Indigenous People Day celebration. And we'd like to talk a little bit about Africans, Indigenous people, and it's in support of the Indigenous People Day. And one of the things we know, Brother Bamboshi, you'll be participating in one aspect of Indigenous People Day in Oklahoma City. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you support the Indigenous People Day? Well, first of all, this is this land belongs to the Indians. And many of us have all kind of irrationality of why it may or may not belong to them. I'm here to say that it belongs to them, period. The question of whether black folks came and visited this hemisphere before the Indians were here and that kind of stuff is speculation. One thing's for sure is that Africans were in Africa. Africa had everything. We were happy. They came and stole us from Africa, and they came to the U.S. and to this hemisphere and stole the Indians' land, period. This question of this bandit murderer, Columbus, it's clear. He's got to go. Not just his statues, but all of the schools named after him, all of the streets named after him, all of the countries and cities named after him. It's got to go. He's a murderer. He's a bandit. He's a criminal. And while the U.S. in particular is very fond of naming schools, countries, hospitals, public streets, etc., after murderers, this one got to go. And so in that sense, we're for Native American Day. We're for Native American Day, and we're for it in every possible way that you could think of. We have been allied with Native Americans for years when they tried to push slavery in Florida and when they tried to force the Seminoles to return to Africans, the Seminoles said, oh, hell no. And together, the Seminoles and the Africans fought against slaveholders to the point where they just couldn't even go into Florida to talk about getting slaves out. And it wasn't until the great Florida War, Indian War, that they were able to not just move the Indians to the West, but move the Seminoles and the Africans who was with them to places like Oklahoma, etc. In Oklahoma, there's 
several coalitions of native groups here and tomorrow they will be celebrating through a webinar the history and the struggle that they have always waged and this webinar will be held outside of well inside of Nappy Roots books but it will be open to the public Unfortunately, I don't have the web information for registering, but if you look on the Nappy Roots books on the internet, on Facebook, you will see that information. I want to add just one thing that, you know, Brother Makasha was so correct. We did not register people to vote so that they could have the vote for nothing. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, we died for the vote. We didn't die for the vote to vote for the Democrats or Republicans. Brother Mukasa said it was a tactical question. And those of us who were killed in that struggle for the vote was so that today we could vote for somebody who will have our interests and serve us, not the best of the worst, not the better choice, not the best of two candidates who both hate us. So I just wanted to add that part of it. And as we talk about the Indigenous People Day, we would like to remind everyone that the day for October 12th that was set up for Indigenous People Day celebration in Washington, D.C. at Malcolm X Park, that particular event has been postponed to October 17th. That's this upcoming Saturday. It has been moved to October the 17th. And they are calling for endorsements and volunteers to come help and support them. So if you'd like to endorse, if you'd like to um, volunteer for that particular day, we ask you please contact John Steinbach, one at verizon.net. It's spelled out J-O-H-N-S-T-E-I-N-B-A-C-H-1 at verizon, V-E-R-I-Z-O-N, dot net. Please contact them, endorse them, and support them. Again, that date has been moved to October, Saturday, October the 17th, at Malcolm X Park. And we praise our host groups who are putting this particular great event together. They are Chief Billy Tayak of the Piscataway Indian Nation and Tayak Territory. Pete London, who is from the American Indian Movement, Mid-Atlantic Region. We have Penny Williams, American Indian Support Group. We have Jafar Shafari. He's with the National Council of Arab Americans. We have John Steinbach, Himashimo Nesakasaki Peace Committee of the National Capital Area. We have Kamal Benjamin of the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. And we have Bob Brown of Pan-African Roots. Those are the key organizations, hosts, who will be sponsoring this event, and we are asking for these events to take place all over the world. And if you can't come in person, 
please stay on, go to maybe this website, www.a-aprp.gc.org, and you can view the program through some of the social media medium that will be available for that particular event. So, Brother McCausley, will you talk a little bit about why we should support the Brother, before, people before today? You, Brother, before yes, you ahead, do Brother that, Beverage. could you, uh-huh. would you also add that Brother Mukasa will be one of the presenters at that, and he has the history of being one of the people who had, who was in the room participating in a meeting between the Native Americans and the Chicanos when they formed a unity of Native Americans, Chicanos, and Africans back in the early 60s. So, Brother Carson, if you want to share a little bit of that history with our people, we, we, we welcome you to um, do so. Well, my history go back a little further than that. Uh, my mother, who supported the movement, uh, was under an area name. Her name was Nellum, N-E-L-O-M, as far as we knew. But later in the years, I come to find out that she kept a secret all the way to her grave, that her name was Nellum, N-E-L-L-O-M. And what happened is that her great her granddaddy, who was uh, in Georgia, and you know they were slaves like slaves, and that they got into it with their white master and one and some white folk got killed or something. But anyway, they jumped in the river with two twins. They jumped in the river, and and the river currents carried them up the river, and they got away, and they got from Georgia to North Alabama, and they went on a Native um, uh, 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 Indian reservation, and the Indians welcomed them and even married them all. And they changed their name from Nellum, N-E-L-L-O-M, to N-E-L-O-M, and build a family. And when they built this family, they lived there and became uh, a big Nellum family and whatever. But their wives, they had got them off the Indian reservation. And so uh, my family and my mama not only encouraged me to be in the movement and to be a freedom fighter, but they fed and uh, our freedom fighters, Soka, Rabney, Bambosha, anybody that came through there fed them and helped them along. But come to find out that we had some not only Native American, Indian blood in us, because wasn't no America, no such thing. Uh, Indian blood in us, African blood in us, and our blood and the African blood run strongly with the Indians because the Indians love and protected the, the so-called slave from Africa and did everything to help us. And they even went to war and killed and died for us. So, and just for justice and freedom and equality, it's our duty to work and fight to give this land back to who it belonged to and to give Palestine back to who it belonged to, to stop the bombing and killing in Yemen, to help, uh, 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 Zimbabwe and, and Nicaragua, Venezuela, and whatever, because all that's part of the same fight. And we know that all the genocide that went on through South Central America and the Caribbean, and they're still doing it. And so, uh, damn Columbus, that we support uh, that great day that's coming. 
the native, the Indian day, and and no such thing as Columbus. And on that note, we'd like to thank everyone tonight, our panelists, and our guests, Brother Bamboshi and Castle, for sharing and having dialogue from brothers to brothers and sisters. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick, we're going to take, we're going to have a quick liberation, liberation break of music. When we come back, we could ask each one of y'all to give us y'all final thoughts tonight to our listening audience. This is Africa on the Move, and like mm-hmm. we said, you can you can hear this program every Sunday from seven to nine p.m. Please spread the word, share this information. We may not give you what you want, but we definitely can try our best to give you what you need. So we're going to this quick break mm-hmm. of liberation. When we come back, we're gonna have our final thoughts from our participants tonight. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. To last through my journey, yeah. Last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger and when the light is clear oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey and made it through my journey yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Pellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino. The place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. 
But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 Thank you, Brother 
Apostles for your contribution to today's program. We next will go to Brother Bamboshi. Brother Bamboshi, your final thoughts for the night. My thoughts are the same that I had in the beginning, that uh, your listening audience should listen to this show with a pencil and paper. Take notes. I think that your show tonight was very educational, and again, I thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to participate. Thank you, my brother. We thank you, Bam Bushy, for your contribution to today's program. And for tonight, finally, we come to our brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, well, you know, recently, Lieutenant uh, Governor of Texas, um, Dan uh, Patrick, he made a statement in which he said that um, life is less important than the survival of America. Life is less important than the survival of America. Think about that for a while. Now, when you talk about, when you look at the economic reality in terms of, you know, so many people, you know, unemployed, so many people homeless, when you look at that situation, the government's refusal to fund programs that would address those issues, it does indeed suggest that life is not very, very important. For African people, uh, when we talk about the, the perilous of the situation, we got to understand that we're not talking, to, um, you know, this is not hyperbole. This is something that's very, very real. And so when we talk about the desperation confronted by African people, we talk about the systematic indifference. When we, when, so when powerful people start talking about the need in terms of dismissing uh, the concerns of working in you know, African people, then it, it has particular implications, very dire implications. Those implications, of course, is that, well, these, all these people that we don't want, that we have a fundamental question in terms of what we do with them. Given capitalism in terms of the kind of hatred that's an intimate part of capitalism, then we can't exclude the possibility that they will actually, uh, aside from turning a large number of African people, actually result to, to killing a large number of African people simply because it's more, it's, it's less, it's less pro, it's, it's more profitable to do it that way. So clearly we got some issues confronted us, and uh, you know we can we can dismiss it our own demise. But the bottom line is that we're in a fight, and no matter how you look at it, we're, we we have to we have to engage in that fight. And having said that, brother Africa, as always, I encourage the audience you know to unravel the matrix, because that is key in terms of understanding the, you know what the issues are and um, why we have to understand those issues and what we must do in terms of uh, resolving the issues that we're confronted with. And after saying that, brother Africa, you have a good night. As well, you do the same, Brother Hockey. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. To our listening audience, friends, and supporters, we thank you for allowing us this opportunity to come to your homes where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with some information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people and help liberate humanity for all the various forms of oppression. Africa. On the Moon is a community project of the African Awareness Association. We come on every Sunday from 7 to 9 Eastern Standard Time, U.S. If you'd like to be a guest or have something you want to say, feel free. Write us. Call us. We'd like to hear your comments. You can write us at AfricaOnTheMoon2 at com. And like always, we tell you, let's continue to strive to go forward ever, backwards never. And the best way and the only way we can do this is to be organized. So let's get organized, join an organization that's fighting to help liberate our people. Until next week, we'll continue to go forward ever, backwards and ever. We leave you with this music of inspiration.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs, her freedom. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. Needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Oh, 
Oh! 